0: Welcome to the Better Together Podcast, supporting seniors in the Willamette Valley, with your hosts, Sean Sibin and John Hughes.
1: Now, here's Sean and John. There he is. The man, the myth, the legend. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. how uh, How's your last two weeks been since uh, our last show?
0: Uh, pretty good. You know, we've had some decent weather for a change, and uh, you know, while I've been busy, it's uh, been enjoyable too.
1: Yeah, for sure. I
0: know uh, this weather
1: just reminds me how much yard work still needs to be done that I've been putting off. So there, it's a it's a double edged sword for sure.
0: Well, if you run out of yard work, you can come out to my house, Sean. Yeah,
1: well, no, there's, there's, thank you. Um, I will, I will respectfully pass because there's plenty to be done and in, uh, in, in my own home for sure. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited for the episode today. We're going to be touching on something that I think every uh, senior in their family should know much more about than they probably do. And that's uh, elder law and estate planning. And I know it's something that's been uh, highlighted and featured on your show many times, um, aging, in the, aging in the Willamette Valley.
0: Yes, it has. And, you know, it may be surprising that people get to be 50, 60 years old, maybe even mm-hmm. older, and they don't know the first thing about a will or a trust or what they should do or what they should not do. And uh, yep. uh, people like Christopher are are good to know. Uh, because we know they know that stuff inside out. And while we may know a tiny bit, it can be a little bit dangerous at times. Exactly. I yep. Um I, I think we both know, you know, we can advise somebody a tiny bit, but then we refer them to somebody like Christopher Hamilton exactly. to get into the nitty gritty, especially because and Christopher can uh, verify this. But, you know, it does vary. You know, mm-hmm. from person to person, of what all do you need to do? Um, but I know Christopher uh, can elaborate on that for sure.
1: Yeah, every every family situation is different. It's not a it's not a cookie cutter um, approach for sure. Although there are definitely some basics, and um, I don't know, you know about about you, but when I first got into the senior services industry and started learning more and had. Um, you know, a couple of of nice coffee appointments with Christopher and just learning and through my mom and dad, there's a lot of confusion about the differences between a trust and a will or, you know, the difference between estate planning and elder law. So we'll definitely get into that here in a little bit. But uh, before we do, I would certainly be remiss by um, if I didn't welcome everybody (laughs) for joining us today. Certainly appreciate it, especially if this is your first time uh, joining us, if it is. Um, and uh, even if you're a repeat visitor, the, the whole purpose and mission behind the Better Together podcast, supporting seniors in our local communities, is just that. It's, it's a focus on all things senior-related around serving our seniors, providing tools, providing resources, Providing uh, information on the businesses and services that are available to seniors and their families in order to help everyone be more prepared and and allow that senior those seniors to live their best life. So that's the mission. Hopefully, <clears throat> excuse me. Hopefully, you'll uh, find some some benefit and some value in uh, in in today's episode. So. Well, without further ado, let's uh, let's bring on our guest today, Christopher Hamilton. Christopher, I've had the uh, privilege of knowing for the last couple of years, got to know him um, a little bit, and it's certainly been a pleasure. He is um, a practicing attorney here in Salem at McGinty Belcher and Hamilton Attorney PC. And uh, Christopher, thanks for carving out some time today. It's great to see you. Thanks again.
2: Yeah, it's good to be here.
1: So John and I were just talking, you probably heard, um, there's oftentimes a lot of confusion on elder law, estate planning, um, how to transfer wealth, the most appropriate way to protect assets. Um, So we're definitely going to be taking a dive, a a deeper dive into that. But before we do, why don't you give the audience a little bit of background on, on yourself, how you got interested into Uh, practicing elder law, and um, a little bit about the practice.
2: Yeah, so as it's been noted, I'm Christopher Hamilton. I grew up in Tualatin. I've been doing elder law and estate planning uh, more or less since I got my license, which is coming up on 10 years. Um, I started doing elder law actually a little bit differently than most people because I started Mm -hmm. in special education law. And I was working to help families work the system and get what they're actually supposed to be getting Mm -hmm. so that people with disabilities could be getting the education they're entitled to. And a couple of bumps later, ended up looking for work with skills in guardianships, which is one of the kind of cornerstones of what builds out into elder law. And it's why I ended up doing this. And so, you know, I took that same heart for protecting people and making sure that the system is working to do what it should be doing. And I'm using that now to help not just seniors, but everyone figure out what they are trying to do to protect themselves and how they can protect their loved ones.
0: Excellent. So let's start with a, a comment I've heard you make several times. And that comment is, Everyone over the age of 18 should have a will. Let's start with that. Will... Me. Well, okay. Everyone over the age of 18 should have a plan.
2: And okay. realistically, for your average 18 year old, we're looking at a power of attorney and an advance directive. If you care about yourself or anyone around you, those are two things that everybody ought to be carrying around. Okay. Because without a power of attorney, no one can help take care of your finances if you end up unable to do it for yourself and without an advanced directive taking care of you when you can't talk about your own health care becomes a nightmare and nobody knows what you want which means you get whatever care the person they can grab decides makes sense which is sure. usually not what you're going for okay
1: so let's back up for one sec a 30,000 or 15,000 foot overview of the difference between, which was one of my questions, the difference between advanced directives and power of attorneys, not that there's, that they are even remotely close to the same thing, but they often get lumped um, at the same time. Is that, is that fair?
2: If you're getting them done through an attorney, they should both be getting done at the same, okay. same
1: time. Yes. And what's uh, the primary what difference and what are they?
2: So what we're looking at there in Oregon, and this changes from state to state. So if you're listening from other states, please check in with somebody that practices in your state. But in Oregon, a power of attorney deals with financial and legal issues and an advanced directive deals with healthcare and placement decisions. So your healthcare representative, which is the person you give power to under your advanced directive can decide what kind of medical care you get can decide where you're living and getting supports. If you need more support that can be arranged at home, decides how your end of life care goes based on the instructions and information you give them in your advance directive. And then a power of attorney is naming an agent and that agent has the authority to do anything you could do with your legal or financial affairs.
1: Okay and is there a recommendation on who in the family or in in that um you know situation who, who should be how do we decide who's who or is there an easy answer to that
2: there is no everybody fit answer other sure. than something you trust okay and so if we're talking about the power of attorney You need to be thinking about somebody you would be willing to hand your checkbook to right this second with the full Mm -hmm. authority to write checks or hand your debit card to with the full authority to spend money because that's what you're doing and you know some people get real freaked out by that but if you're not looking at somebody you could trust with that while you are able to monitor your stuff Mm -hmm. you're really not looking at somebody that you could trust to be doing that when you And then on the advanced directive, the other consideration becomes a little bit of background knowledge and emotional stability because the decisions that are going to get made using an advanced directive are frequently very stressful things to be looking at. You know, we're talking about, do we use life-sustaining treatments? How do we address life-threatening concerns? And so you want somebody who's going to be able to hold up under that sure. and who's going to do what you told them to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So if you've got, say, a spouse that has a very different philosophy, approach, religion to how they would go about that, you want to think about whether you really should be naming them or not. Or if you want to pick, you know, one of the kids that has more aligned beliefs or a friend or And, you know, if you run out of people, you know, there are also professionals.
0: That that reminds me of my own family. Um, I think when advanced directives and that kind of thing were first uh, getting started in in Oregon, I remember my dad giving me something, um, you know, with his wishes that in a nutshell said, if a machine's keeping me alive and there's no hope I'll get better, pull the plug and walk away. Right. And I remember saying, shouldn't this go to mom? And he looked at me and he goes, what do you think? And I went, Oh, she would never do that. So it was up to my sister and I to make that decision if the time ever came. And did you make
1: John, did you as a family and, and Christopher, certainly a question for you as well, that decision for the advanced directives should be made together as as a as a team, as a partnership, as a family, whatever that situation is, when the person who's having, you know, if it's if it's my advanced directives, obviously before something major were to happen and I can't make those decisions for myself, not having someone in place, what now what happens?
2: So if you don't plan the core element that I'll probably end up coming back to quite a few times today is the government planned for you. <laughs> and I don't know many people that would like the legislature writing their plan. No. And so if we're talking about an advanced directive, <clears throat> generally you're kind of hosed. Um, there's not a lot of decision-making authority that can be easily passed and if we're outside of a very narrow set of end of life circumstances, you know, there's a chance it's the hospital ethics board that's deciding on what care you get because nobody else has the authority to. Um, If we are in that very narrow batch of circumstances, which are close to death, permanently unconscious at the end stages of an advanced progressive illness or in a position where life support is only going to inflict permanent and severe pain. In those four circumstances, there is a default healthcare representative assigned by statute. And generally, that's spouse, parents, kids, usually in that order. Gotcha. But, you know, especially when we're looking at categories with more than one member in them, that can get contentious Mm -hmm. really fast. Sure. So sure. really make a decision,
0: mm-hmm.
2: set something up and don't leave it to a committee.
1: And yeah. where can, where can a fam- where can families get, uh, advanced directive power of attorney? Can they just find those online? Do they need to get those from their healthcare provider and from, from an attorney's office or from an attorney like yourself, where do we find those?
2: So the advance directive is a state form. It was generated by the legislature. Well, actually it was generated by a committee of people who do this and sent over to the legislature to be butchered and then voted on. Um, but that exists. There is no, you know, no attorney has created an advanced directive. They're all using the state's form. Uh, if you get ones that engage with it fairly strongly, like I do, there's a lot that we're adding to it or that we're addressing beyond the basic scope, but you know, it's still the basic form and that can be found on the Oregon health Authority's website that can be found at, you know, your local hospital your clinic, pretty much any medical provider. Um, and then for a power of attorney, you really end up at about the same state you would if you're the kind of person who wants to send away for a kit to amputate your own foot. You can do it. It's out there. But if you screw up... Highly not not recommended. (laughs) And so, I mean, they do exist online or at stationary stores, but it is very difficult to get what you need and to know what you need without reaching out to somebody who does this for a living. Okay. Because
0: so I, I have a question. Points. Yeah. Um, so in Oregon, we also have another form called a post. Where does that fit in? Mm-hmm. Or does it replace the advanced directive or supplement it? Or how does that work?
2: The two work together doing related but different things. So the POLST is a portable order on life-sustaining treatment that is orders directly from your healthcare provider to whoever the heck is working on you about what to do in very, very explicitly described circumstances. It's not giving somebody the ability to make their own decisions. It's just if X, then Y, which under some, you know, there are a few places where that's really helpful but it is also something that is only really appropriate to individuals with either very fragile health or individuals who have a life-limiting diagnosis and aren't expected to be alive in the next six months. And whereas the advanced directive is naming somebody to make healthcare decisions anytime you can't. So it is much, much broader. Okay.
1: All right. So let's, the key takeaway, I think then at least for me is if you're over the age of 18, mm-hmm. have a plan, have some, have some sort of plan. And that plan starts with a power of attorney and advanced directives. Hmm. Okay. All right. I wanted to, I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything um, that, uh, before we before we change um, switch gears here, um, what's the difference between and I didn't know this um, until I got somewhat involved into the senior services industry. But uh, share share with the audience the difference between estate planning and elder law and. I think there's probably some, maybe some overlap, at least with some confusion, the difference between a trust and a will.
2: So those are two very large questions. I'm going to start with the first one (laughs) and then loop around to the second. Sure. So the reason why it gets confusing as to the lines between elder law and estate planning is that estate planning is a subset of elder law. Elder law is the category of law that includes estate planning, guardianships, and conservatorships, which the courts call protective proceedings, Medicaid, veterans' benefits, and related issues. Um, But you will see certain attorneys advertise as elder law attorneys, and other attorneys advertise as estate planning attorneys. And usually when you see somebody advertising as an estate planning attorney, that's a signal for two things. Thing one is they don't like the messier stuff that comes with the rest of elder law. They would much rather just stick with the planning. And two, they are more likely to be dealing with taxable estates and trying to engage in the complicated maneuvers it takes to navigate estate taxes and related taxes without totally screwing up your life. Whereas most elder law attorneys are focusing on estate planning for the rest of us, looking at guardianships and conservatorships and the other things it takes to take care of what somebody needs beyond just a plan. So it's making it, implementing it, and dealing with the lack of a plan if we have to run into that situation. And then looking at wills versus trusts, those are a completely different category of things, but the core of what's there is both. Well, a trust is a lot of things. And so, this is going to be a very cursory answer, but usually we're talking about both in the context of planning for what happens to your stuff when you're dead and a will. Well, and the biggest differences have to do with probate probate being the state process of moving stuff from dead people to living people and a will does not get us out of the probate process. It simply takes control of the probate process. So rather than falling back on the personal representative picked by the state and the distribution plan picked by the state, we are looking at actually deciding who's dealing with the estate and putting everything where we want it to go
1: versus the state so the wills obviously is going to identify somebody to do that versus the state doing it for you through the probate process
2: well the state's still it's not that the state does it for you in probate it's that where things go and who has priority to take control is set out by state statute okay okay And we all have a default will if we don't make one for ourselves. And it's that default will that comes forward. Whereas if you do a will, then it's whoever you pick to be in charge and whatever distributions you go with protecting whoever you want. Um, And then the core benefit of a trust is trying to avoid that probate to make things cheaper and easier on whoever gets left behind and has to clean up after you're gone. And when we're talking cheaper and easier, it's the difference between spending nine to 18 months in probate and, you know, losing five to 13 grand out of the estate to attorneys, court costs, newspaper costs, similar things dealing with a probate to potentially not even needing to hire an attorney to get a trust taken care of.
1: Okay, so we we know the difference the the, the general basic difference between um, a will and a trust, but there's different types of trust, right? The two most common I hear of the most are the revocable and irrevocable trust. So what's the difference between those two and is in the will would be, completely separate from that because they're two completely separate entities in and of of themselves?
2: Yes and no. A will is always going to come along with a trust. Okay. But rather than being the kind of planned out will that we just talked about, it's going Mm -hmm. to be what's called a pour over will that acts as a safety net and just dumps any property we missed into the trust. It should never see the light of day, but failing to draft it is malpractice because things go wrong. Um, and then, as far as revocable versus irrevocable trusts, we're talking about a good idea and kind of what everybody should be doing and a solution to very extreme problems that very few of us have. So, a revocable trust, and usually at that point, we're talking about a revocable living trust, meaning it can be. Amended, it can be completely withdrawn or revoked. Anything in it can be taken out. It's basically completely flexible until the person who made it dies or loses capacity. Okay. <clears throat> Whereas an irrevocable trust is stuck. Whatever it says, it says. It cannot be changed. And there are kind of three common types of irrevocable trusts that we run into or use the first is an asset protection trust when you are so dead set on somebody inheriting from you that you are willing to give away your stuff now rather than risk paying for your own care and having control of your life and you can tell by the way i describe it that i don't think it's a great idea yeah um it's a really aggressive way to get to medicaid but usually if you're in a position where we're going to be talking about that you're in a position where it makes more sense to pay for your own care in a place that you want and have control over what's going on not always there are definitely times where i will help set up and fund that kind of thing but it's rarely appropriate then the more frequently used and appropriate versions of an irrevocable trust are a supplemental needs trust which is a special tool we use when somebody is receiving state benefits that require them to be broke like medicaid for health care or supplemental security income for income or you know snap hud all of those types of things and then the other piece we use is what's called an income cap trust that kind of lets us get around some issues related to medicaid and having too much income
1: okay i just i can see and understand the more i i speak with you the the different tentacles and how confusing it can be for folks and their families for sure
0: that definitely very complicated one question I have, Christopher, is if you're trying to set aside assets for specific people, mm. is that all done in one trust, or can you have more than one that is set up for certain recipients? You.
2: So I'm going to take an example of the type of scenario I think you're talking about to illustrate what we're looking at. Let's say that you know, John has five grandkids that he'd like to help get through college. But he knows that your average 18 year old should not have a giant pile of money dropped in their lap. And so he would like to set up trusts for the grandkids to help make sure that money is available, but maybe controlled by a responsible adult. We would set those up as part of the revocable living trust we did for John. So that when he dies, those separate trusts are spawned out of his trust but they don't need to be separately established entities before that time. And there can be circumstances where it makes more sense to set up the freestanding trusts ahead of time, but usually that's when we're looking more at that supplemental needs trust realm. And we've got you know a younger adult who's drawing needs-based benefits and multiple people that would want to benefit them at death. So we look at creating a single freestanding trust for everybody to point to rather than having, you know, five, six different trusts created out of different people's estates.
1: Makes sense. Okay. So what would, what would be an example of where, you know, not having a trust in, in place could um, negatively impact um, either the, the beneficiary or the, the family? You know, when, when would, what's a, what's a good example or situation that you've seen where had they had a trust in place, this could have been avoided?
2: So there's a lot of ground where the difference between a will and a trust is really just a matter of personal preference. You're not right or wrong for going either direction when but there are some complicating factors that start making a trust make a lot more sense and one of those is if we've got a lot of real estate because the more land we have the more complicated things can be to work through probate and the easier it is to just deal with it all outside and not have those tensions the bigger reason comes when that land is in multiple states because every state wants to control its own dirt. And so if we're looking at probate, then we're probating in every state we own dirt. So that can get real messy real fast. If we've yeah. got land in Idaho and Washington and a vacation home in Arizona, then you know we're looking at four different probates to deal with one estate. Whereas a single trust could have taken care of all of that. And the other major reason to look at a trust is for business owners, because with a trust, we can assign the business into the trust and the trustee has authority to manage the to step in and start managing business things more or less right away which means we don't miss payroll. We don't miss a vendor payment. We don't have the company come crashing down around our ears because a judge is, you know, bogged down doing other things and hasn't had a time to deal with our probate petition. Right. Whereas if that business goes into probate and we're talking about a single owner business, that can be what kills it. That can be what makes it so that there really isn't anything for anybody to inherit because it went down in flames while nobody could deal with, And checks. Um, Another time where that makes a lot of difference is when we've got kids. Hmm. Because probate takes time. It takes time to get somebody the authority to start dealing with things, and it takes time to get the authority to start spending money. And there are provisions for support for minors and support for spouses, but even accessing those provisions, again, takes time. Whereas a trustee stepping up to take over just steps up. There isn't court process involved. We're not waiting on a judge. They just go to the bank, say, Hey, this person's dead. I'm next, you know, I'm the successor trustee. Please let me into this account. And, you know, there may be a little bit of extra paperwork from there, but that gets the ball rolling and we've got the ability to, you know, keep a kid fed Sure. moving forward. Sure.
1: So let's say hypothetically family's done the right thing. They're, they're on the same page. They have a trust, they have a will, um, they've come to see you and, and you've set them up, um, and you've helped protect them, their assets and have a, have a transfer of, of wealth plan in place. How often is, and now are they done and they just wait until, um, Mom or dad, husband or wife, one of the one of the people under the trust passes or is it something that on an annual basis, almost like a a physical checkup, you should have a checkup with that elder law attorney to make sure nothing has changed and everything is still in line with what the original plan was or now in alignment with the plan that's changed.
2: So there are two reasons to come back and well, two categories of reasons to come back and check on things. One, we should be doing it every four to five years, just as kind of a Mm -hmm. regular maintenance thing. Okay. And the other is when people start having major life events. So when somebody is born, somebody dies, somebody gets married, somebody gets divorced, somebody acquires new property, or we decided we don't like somebody those are the kinds of times we want to come back in and assess does our new reality still get well served by the trust that we set up before.
1: Gotcha. So what would, what would you say, um, would be, and this is somewhat of a loaded question and I I definitely think this is going to be, um, You know, a a two part show, but for the sake of time, if you could have the five, what would you say would be the five most important things a senior and their family should know or do in order to protect them and their assets? What would those five takeaways be?
2: There's not a universally applicable answer to that because it varies wildly based on what we have, right? The most important thing to do is usually to reach out and have a conversation with someone like me about Mm -hmm. estate planning. And that sort of doesn't have to be me. There are plenty of other great estate planning and elder law attorneys in town, but getting Explaining what needs to be thought about is an entire semester of law school, if not more. And so there's just not enough I can download to somebody in this kind of format to really cover what they might need to be worried about. So step one is just go talk to a professional. Most of us don't charge for consults or it's a fairly minimal charge and can frequently be rolled into the cost of actual work that needs done. If that becomes where we're going. So usually you're out nothing, but a little bit of time to understand what you actually need. But generally we're looking at, there should be a power of attorney. There should be an advanced directive. Mm -hmm. And once we have things that can't be dealt with outside of probate, because of how they are we need a plan in the form of a will or a trust to make sure that everything goes where it's supposed to when you're dead sure well i guess really we just need a plan to make sure it all goes where it's supposed to when you're dead regardless of the form that that takes but depending on circumstances that may or may not require a will and a trust trust.
0: so to maybe take sean's question and flip it upside down What are three or four common mistakes you make? Cuz I know at one point in time I kind of had a conversation with you and I said, "Oh, well in my mom's case, she made me joint owner on her bank accounts." And your comment was, "You got lucky." So yes. could, starting there, could you cover, you know, a handful of things that are probably common mistakes that people do, especially if they're trying to do it themselves?
2: and i mean other than trying to do it yourself the some of the more common ways people do that that screw themselves up you know they try to add somebody's name to an account a house a vehicle and if that person did not actually put money into the account the house the vehicle the whatever then you've made a gift that can screw you for medicaid purposes that can have tax implications. If that person gets into some kind of legal trouble, you know, has a car accident and was carrying state minimum insurance and now has judgments against them for way more than they own, your stuff is now exposed to their liabilities. And if we're talking about something like a house, you know, if I screw up, my house is relatively safe. If my name were also on my parents' house, Their house is not. It's not my primary residence, so it doesn't get those protections. And so, you know, you add a kid to your house, you can end up homeless because they got in a car accident. If we're looking at, you know, naming people on accounts, I frequently see, you know, somebody realizes, okay, I'm not going to add the kid to the account because that's a problem. I'm going to name them as a pay on death beneficiary and they name kid one of five thinking that kid one is going to distribute all the money equally to the other four. And assuming kid one is an angel and actually does that, you have still caused them tax problems. You have still caused all kinds of messiness because that money became one's money and then one made gifts to the other four. So if we're gonna end up using a POD, make sure that it is a POD that reflects how you want things to be at the end of the day not POD to the responsible kid and make it their problem. Right. That's not a great way to reward the responsible kid. (laughs) And then the other thing is, if kid one isn't an angel, kid one gets a lot and everybody else is getting nothing. And there's nothing anybody can do about that. So those are some of the things that get screwed up. The other major thing with property in particular comes from capital gains tax issues. So, you know, let's go back to getting put on my parents' house. At that point, my basis for capital gains tax purposes would be what my parents paid for it when they bought it 20 years ago. So when I sell it, I'm paying tax on the difference between the price 20 years ago and the price when I sell. Whereas if it passes to me through a trust or through a probate at death, I get to move my basis for capital gains tax purposes up to whatever it's worth when the second of my parents dies, mm-hmm. which can save tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand or more in taxes. taxes. Yep. So DIY strategies almost always cause more problems than they solve unless you get really lucky.
1: And to avoid that, they can come and, and see you, um, I believe, in. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you are one of the uh, elder law attorneys here in in Salem, in the Willamette Valley that does that initial consult at no charge, correct? Correct. Okay. And yeah, that is, that is,
2: in it, you know, 90 minutes to sit down, talk true. about your family, talk about your assets and figure out what do you need?
1: Yeah. Yeah. 90, 90 minutes, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's worth that investment of your time to make sure that you're protected and that you've got a plan in place. Christopher, I can't tell you how much John and I appreciate it. We certainly um, are, at least I can speak for myself, I'm much more informed and educated now than I was um, 40 minutes ago. So thank you for that. Um, in closing, what's, what's the best way the audience can get in contact with you um, and or your office?
2: Best ways to pick up a phone and give us a call at 503-371-9636. And if phone is not your thing, send an email. Christopher at McGinty, M-C-E-G-I-N-T-Y dash Belcher, B-E-L-C-H-E-R.com.
1: Perfect. John, any, uh, any final words to, to Christopher? Comments?
0: Well, having spoke on numerous topics with Christopher over the years, I know during this 40 minutes, we've just really scratched the surface. Oh gosh. If, if that, our, our our listeners, your biggest takeaway is talk to somebody, at yeah. least get that consult and get an idea of what you've got to do. Then you can shop attorneys and find out who will do it the cheapest or whatever. But if you go off download stuff from the internet and just try to do it yourself. Um, I I know there's a lot of other mistakes people can make um, in addition to the ones Christopher covered today. So it, in the long run, it's just not worth it. And the absolute worst thing is to not have a will or trust and basically let the state uh, or some judge decide what happens to your stuff. And in what kind of time frame and all that. So it's very important to talk to somebody like Christopher and and get some expert guidance for sure. All
1: right, well, Christopher, thanks again for uh, joining us. We would love to have you on the show again and continue to take a deeper dive. Like John said, I know we're only scratching the surface. So um, certainly appreciate you carving out some time for us this afternoon and we'll talk again soon. That's yeah, been a pleasure. All
0: right, all right. Thank, thank you. Sir.
1: Oh, that was good stuff, John. That, um, it's, it's a lot. And like you said, we're barely, barely scratching the surface.
0: Right. I know I had a conversation with Christopher once, um, you know, kind of about a a blended family Mm -hmm. and the couple makes a will together that distributes things out to both their children they had before the marriage, but in the case of just a will, as opposed to a trust, if one spouse dies, the other one can change the will and cut that person's children out altogether. So again, there's a lot of things to think about and a lot of things you're not even aware of where somebody like Christopher will either pick up on what you say or ask a lot of questions to where they get a good idea of how to set it up and how to protect everybody's wishes. Yep. And like I said earlier, don't be like my brother and pass away without a will or a trust or anything because we're approaching the, the three year mark of his passing and his kids are still dealing with probate. Um, it's a different state. It's not Oregon, but yeah, but
1: still they're still having to they're still having to go through it and, and deal with it and um, right. it could it could have been avoided is, uh, is the key takeaway there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the other thing Christopher said before we wrap up that I think is important is reviewing the will or the the trust, the estate plan, the whole plan, if you will, every four to five years or when there's a major life event for right. me, for for example, in, in my family, um, when my dad was was still with us and when my older brother was still alive and um, They were obviously included in that plan. Um, Things have changed. Um, Both have passed and we've not gone and had that updated. So I appreciate Chris. I appreciate you asking that question and him reminding me that that was something that needed to be done um, because it's just not, you just don't go once and get this plan in place and then be done. If things change, it's got to evolve and change with you and your circumstances.
0: I, I remember asking my mother if she had a will, and this mm-hmm. was probably 10 years after my uh, stepdad passed away. And she goes, yes. And then I, I kind of smiled and I said, is it the same one you had created when I was still a toddler? And she replied, Yes. And i'm like okay we need to get that updated because yes there's assets and other things that she didn't have when i was a toddler and now i was 40 years old talking to her and (laughs) you know it was uh a a bit of a challenge to get her to go do it but once she did then i felt more comfortable that everything was in place and there would be no judge involved uh to decide who gets what or I'd be not having a fist fight with my brothers over who gets what. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And actually my mom made me trustee of the estate and power of attorney and all that based on a comment I made once of I would load my truck and go while my brothers were fist fighting in the yard and <laughs> in her mind, okay, you're the one that's going to be in charge. Yeah. Oh, thanks a lot for that mom. But exactly. it, it did cut down on some stuff, you know,
1: well, I, uh, I certainly appreciate, again, Christopher coming on, um, appreciate everybody tuning in. Thank you so much for watching the show or listening um, to the audio version of the, of the podcast. Uh, the show is available everywhere um, you can find podcasts. Um, hopefully you found the information of value. If you do, please like, share, and subscribe to the show. Um, and I truly believe that in order for us to have better lives, better families, better communities and provide better resources to our seniors, we must be better together. And um, we're going to continue. John and I are going to continue to uh, work on um, sharing what we can to help seniors and their families. I've been your host. My name is Sean Sybin. I'm a licensed real estate broker. In, uh, in the state of Oregon with eXp Realty. I am also a certified seniors real estate specialist, and uh, I focus on serving the senior client ages 55 and over. You can reach me at 503-569-5651, email shawn.sibon, S-I-B is in boy, O-N, at com or on my website at www.shawnsibon.com dot john a huge thank you to you what's the best way everybody can get a hold of you
0: um well i'm john hughes i own and operate comfort care home care here in salem i'm a certified senior advisor and a certified dementia educator uh you can call us at 503-400-6637 or find us at comfortcare.com
1: and that's C O M F O R C A R E, correct?
0: That is correct.
1: Excellent. All right, everybody. We will be back in two weeks on February twenty second. Uh, the topic of that show is going to be uh, the senior housing, uh, senior housing in the Salem Kaiser area, and really the senior housing crisis. Our guest is going to be Stephanie Bob. She's the resource. And development director for the United Way of the Mid Willamette Valley. Certainly looking forward to talking to her about um, the uh, what they're doing to help the the homeless uh, problem and, and the homelessness with seniors. So, John, have a great rest of your week. We'll see you again in uh, in two weeks and continue to be better together.
0: Indeed, I look forward.